Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey tackles what the Bible says about the role women play in the church. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Tonight we're talking biblical femininity. Now here's the thing, guys. We live in a culture that is completely backwards. You may not realize this, you're living in a time that is completely unprecedented, where truths that have been self-evident since the beginning of time are no longer truth. They are now being questioned. It is very similar to the day of Nineveh. If you guys are familiar with the book of Jonah, it was said of those who were in Nineveh that they were so confused that they couldn't tell their left hand from their right hand. That, that truths that were so clear and simple were, had gotten so confusing and convoluted that things like knowing left from right didn't exist anymore. And like the days of Nineveh, I am convinced that the Lord is raising up a generation of Jonah's who will stand and say, this is what is true and give clarity and give um, clear foundation for society again. And that's you guys. We are the generation of Jonah in the name of Jesus. Amen. You guys are living in unprecedented times. I'm just telling you. It's hard to be a Christian. It's hard to navigate truth today. I don't envy you. I don't envy being a young adult. Oh, gosh, it sounds horrible. Last week, we touched on biblical masculinity, and we asked the question, what does the Bible say about being a man? And if you remember, the punchline was not a whole lot. The reality is the Bible doesn't speak a whole lot about being a man. The Bible was not written to tell you how to be a man, and it wasn't written to tell you how to be a woman. It was written to tell you how to be a Christian. And at the end of the day, being a Christian is a higher calling than being a man or being a woman. Now, that does not mean that there are not differences between men and women, but the reality is the Bible wasn't written to address those. And so what we do is we're trying to go, okay, what does the Bible actually say about being a man? What does the Bible actually say about being a woman? Now, here's the thing, is the Bible actually says more about being a woman exclusively than it does about being a man, interesting enough. And so what we did last week is we, we did some, some inferences. We looked at um, Adam, and we go, okay, what did Adam do as the first male archetype? And, and we go, okay, I want to uh, hit some points from him and, and look at his life and figure out what does it mean to be a man. So that's what we did last week. Well, this week, there's actually clear Bible passages that we're going to be going through. We're talking biblical femininity. And what I'd like to do is we're going to do this probably in three categories. We're going to spend most of our time in one category. We're going to talk about being a woman in culture, woman in church, and woman in covenant, or woman in marriage. Okay, we're going to talk about what that means, but we're going to spend most of our time talking about womanhood in the church, because if we're honest, that's the place that it gets the most confusing. Cool? Let's talk about women in culture for just a second. Women in culture. Actually, you know what? I'm so sorry. I completely skipped this whole page right here. Let's go back. We're going to hit women in culture, but I'm going to give you just a Three introductory thoughts, <laughs> just to get us on the same page for where we are going. Okay, now two of these I mentioned last week, but it's worth re- repeating. Um, women are equally but differently created in the image of God. Okay, not just man is created in the image of God. Women and men are created in the image of God, and you need both. You need masculine men and feminine women to equally represent the heart, character, and nature and reflect the very image of God in the same way that you need every tribe, nation, and tongue. 
okay? We need men to represent the image of God, and we need women to represent the image of God. Now you say, well, that, well, that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal. That seems like a no-brainer. It does seem like a no-brainer, but you would be shocked how much confusion there is around this subject, even in the church today. And I'm just going to flat out tell you, women are equally created in the image of God as are men. Now, equal, they are both equally important. They are both equally valuable. And I uh, mentioned this last week. This is the next point. I think it's really helpful that women are called the helper. If you remember, the very beginning of time, God creates man, and he says, let's make man in our image. He creates Adam, and then he goes through the different days of creation, and he says, it's, not, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he sees that Adam's alone, and he goes, it's not good. And out of that desire, he makes Eve, and he says, I will make a helper well-suited for him. And so he causes, causes Adam to, to go under uh, a deep sleep, and he takes a rib from his side, and out of that rib, he fashions woman, right? Now, if you remember that, I, the point I made is that women are specifically created to be the helper, and they are called the helper, and the only other person that is called the helper in the Bible is the Holy Spirit, No one else is titled the helper but the third member of the Trinity. And the reason I say that is because I think it speaks to value and position that women should have, not just in the church, but in our role in society, because nobody should in their right mind go, well, the Father is greater than the Son, and the Son is greater than the Holy Spirit. We don't do that. They are all God, all three of them, separate, distinct, but also together. They are God. It is the Trinity. The Holy Spirit isn't the kind of, you know, crazy drunk uncle in the corner. The Holy Spirit isn't some kind of subservient created thing. The Holy Spirit is God, and he is as important as Jesus and as the Father, just as women are as important as men. Different roles, different functions, absolutely. But same level of value, okay? Women are the helper, uh, and I made the point of saying that it's, it, was, it was important to remember that Adam needed help. You guys remember that? That, that the, one of the first things we see is that, un, that man who was untouched by sin, perfect man, let's go, perfect man, still needed help. Still couldn't do all that God was telling him to do and fulfill his call without help. And so Eve was created. And so that leads us to the third point, where Adam failed at his job to protect the garden, Eve failed at her job to help Adam. Now, last week, I railed on Adam a little bit, if you guys remember, because what I said was Adam was very specifically created with two commands, to serve and to guard, or your Bible says keep and cultivate, but his job was ultimately to protect the garden and to protect Eve from all of the things unclean outside of God's sanctuary, which was Eden. Everything outside, Adam was to protect Against. He was to protect the holiness of God's sanctuary. And he, whether he got lazy, whether he got distracted, something happened, but he let a serpent into the garden when he was told, don't let the serpent into the garden. Adam failed to do his job, and now we're in this mess. But here's the thing it wasn't just Adam who failed to do his job, Eve failed to do her job. Her job was to co labor with Adam for the call of God for mankind. Eve was supposed to help Adam's call. Eve was supposed to help see God's will um, hit the earth and see God's plan hit the earth. 
And when man fell and he failed to do his job, it now is in Eve's court. The ball's in Eve's court. And if Eve was the helper that she was supposed to be, it would have stopped right there. She was plan B, essentially. Adam failed, the serpent's in, the serpent gets to Eve, and she could have, should have said, yeah, I'm not going to listen to you, and then we wouldn't be in this whole mess. If she was helpful instead of harmful, we wouldn't be in this mess. But she did not do her job just like Adam didn't do his job. He didn't protect, and she didn't help. And now we are all in this crazy mess thousands of years later. Glory to God. I only say that because it takes both man and woman co-laboring together in order to see God's promises and to see God's plans fulfilled on the earth. And what you notice in the relationship between Adam and Eve, very specifically, is that when one fails, they both fail. It didn't take just both, it didn't take both of them failing at the same time. It took one chink in the armor between male and female and them co-laboring together. And the next thing you know, the whole thing unravels. And it speaks, I think, very specifically to both genders' importance, not just in the kingdom of God, but in culture today. They were meant, created to be co-laborers. If you remember, Eve was taken out of the side of man. And what we say is he was, she was taken out of the side of man to walk side by side with him, out from under the arm of man to be protected by him and near to the heart of man to be loved by him. That is Matthew Henry. I love that. I use that at weddings. It gets him all the time. So women are equally but differently created in the image of God. Women were created as the helper, and where Adam didn't do his job as protector, Eve didn't do her job as helper. So I want that to kind of like frame up the way that we look at the rest of the sermon. Now we can move on to page three. We're going to talk about women and culture. For the greater part of human history, chauvinism has dominated and reigned supreme. You guys know what that word chauvinism is? It's, it's men out front and men above. That men have a greater value, that men have, a greater, um, have greater worth, and men are more important. And for the greater, uh, the greater part of our history, not just as Americans, but as human beings, chauvinism has reigned supreme, and women have been thought of as lesser. Women have been thought of as um, simply means to an end. They have been abused and oppressed in all kinds of ways throughout all of human history. And it's chauvinism that kind of taken the front seat of that, but over the last hundred years, at least here in America, and more particularly in the last 40 years, and then again in the last five to 10 years, we have seen that pendulum of, of chauvinism swing all the way to the other side. It's a really confusing time to be a woman in culture. Now, I don't know that from firsthand experience, but I do know that from talking to people like my wife or talking to some of the ladies in the room. It's a really hard time to be a woman. It's a really confusing time because at the end of the day, for so long, men were seen as out front and more valuable and women were seen as behind, but now culture has completely shifted that. And what they've tried to do is they've tried to write the wrong that was done to women over so many years. And so now what happens is you have culture that celebrates women and celebrates everything feminine, and it's, and it's good, and it's right, and it's awesome. And I would just take a moment to say, I am so glad that chauvinism is being eroded in our country. That's a great thing. Men should not be out front and above. They should be side by side with women. 
But what's happened in this effort to right the ship, the culture has swung the pendulum to the other direction, and now we're not dealing with chauvinism. We're dealing with hardcore feminism. And it's just the opposite. It's the same form of evil, but it's the opposite. And what we have is we have women who are now saying, no, I am out front, and women should be above, and men should be subservient to men. And I would just say that that's evil. That's wrong. That's not the way that God set up things. God didn't set up chauvinism, and he didn't set up feminism. Actually, the way that God set it up is he goes, hey, no, it's not that that men are out front and women are behind, or that women are out front and men are behind. It's that God is up front, and men and women are side by side behind. That's how God created this whole thing to work. We are the bride, and he is the bridegroom. He is the head, and we are the body. Chauvinism Evil, wrong. But make no mistake, feminism and hardcore feminism is equally as wrong. Anything that would seek to put somebody because of their gender or their race in a superior position is evil and wrong. And it can be really difficult because there are some really good things that come alongside with feminism. I have a daughter. and She's seven years old, and I think about the world that she's going to grow up in and, and there's a lot of things that make me tremble. But you know something that I think is really cool? I'm going to level with you. That when, it gets to be, when she gets to be 30 years old, 40 years old, there's a real chance that she could be president one day. Not, I'm just saying, I'm not saying she, I mean, that'd be a prodigy, right? But the point being, there's an opportunity for her to, to climb the highest ladder. And as a dad, that makes me really happy. As a dad, as a man, I'm really glad to be part of a society that does want to celebrate women, but I'm equally grieved because what I don't want to happen is for masculinity to be destroyed and femininity to be elevated and celebrated. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be equal, men and women co-laboring together, God out front, us in the back seat. And we need to be really careful as we're approaching culture today that we are not allowing the conservatives to tell us how to think about our masculinity or our femininity. And we're not allowing the progressive liberals to tell us how to think about our femininity or our masculinity. Guys, we are Christians, which means ultimately we allow the Bible to cut through all of the crud of our culture and tell us how we should think and feel about every issue. We're Christians. We're not conservatives, we're not liberals, we're not Republicans, we're not Democrats, we're not Gen Z, we're not millennials, we are Christians. And our highest authority on the earth is the Bible. And I would give you an admonition, ladies in particular, because I get it's it's a weird place to be in our culture right now. Here's my admonition for everybody in this room. You need to completely unplug from culture best you can. Now there was a time I get it, where Christians were like, no, we don't need to stick our head in the sand, and we don't need to, you know, we don't need to be you know, completely ignorant about what's going on in the world around us, but I'm just gonna tell you, you live in a culture where the narrative is so loud and culture is so strong that you can stick your head in the sand and you're still gonna get the important sound bites, okay? You guys need to unplug from culture. You need to get off social media. I'm just telling you, it's not helpful. You probably need to stop watching YouTube as much. You probably need to stop listening to all your podcasts, okay? There's lots of things that we do every day that inundates us with a cultural narrative, and you may say, well, I don't believe that cultural narrative, so, so it's okay for me to listen to it. And I'm just going to tell you, the more that you listen to it, the more you're going to start to think like it. 
And it's really, really important, guys, that we do not allow the culture to tell us what it is to be a man, and we do not allow the culture, ladies, to tell us what it means to be a woman. We want God to do that. And if the only way to do it is to stick your head in the sand, get off social media, and start living a life free of the culture best you can, then by all means, please do it. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to be happier. I'm just going to tell you right now. I don't know a single person who has come off of social media fast and was like, that wasn't awesome. I hated that. Everybody was like, man, that was so good for my soul. And then they just start slowly getting, oh, I'll just get on Instagram. And then I'll get on, well, I don't know, whatever that is. What it's Snapchat. What, I don't know what the new ones are. What's the, what's the, what's the one that, Shelly, God bless you. She's always on with the, no, no, it's not TikTok. I don't even know what it is. God, I'm old. What's the one where it's like randomly you have to just like show what you're doing? Be real. Be real. Yeah, that's right. How about be a Christian? Let's get that social media app. How about be heavenly minded? Okay, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We cannot allow the culture to tell us to put women out front and men in the back seat. We cannot allow the culture to tell men that it's wrong to be men. We need men to be men. We need women to be women. And we need to celebrate the differences. And we need to celebrate the worth of each other, regardless of what culture tells us to do. Amen? Okay. That being said, I want to talk to you about women in the church. Um, this is probably, if, if we're honest, that's probably the reason you're here. That's probably the thing that intrigues you the most. Um, I didn't grow up in church. And so when I, when I came into the church, I was 18 years old, and I got real culture shock because I, I came from just godless pagan world and everything that was going on in the world, and I, I had no grid for why we do things the way that we do things in church. And so what happened is I just basically bought everything hook, line, and sinker because I didn't know. And one of the things that you'll hear us say often around here is whoever gets to you first shapes your theology, right, wrong, or indifferent. So if the Baptists get you, you're going to be a Baptist. If the Pentecostals get you, you're going to be a Pentecostal. And I didn't know the Bible because I was a brand new Christian. And so everything that happened in church, I just took and assumed it was biblical. And that actually got me into a lot of trouble. And to be honest with you, it's kind of culty when we do that. Amen? How many things do you believe that you couldn't really point to the Bible and say why you believe it? That should convict you. We can go home right now. This idea of women in ministry was one of those subjects for me. And um, I will just tell you, if you're a lady in the room, there's probably two passages that come to your mind. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 14, it's 1 Timothy 2. And they're hard passages. And, and I just, I'm going to start off and just tell you right now, they're hard passages. Um, it can make you uncomfortable, and it can make you, it might make you squirm a little bit. Now, um, I, I would just say that that needs to be embraced because it's the Bible. And even if it's painful and even if it's hard to hear, whether it's on this issue or it's on any other issue, we as Christians, we are called to embrace it. The pain, the struggle, all of it. And so these two passages, though, when I first got saved, I started to read them, and they seemed really clear. And if you're unfamiliar with these passages, I'll quote them, but we are going to read them later on. But it's, it's uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is, is women must be kept silent in the church. And then 1 Timothy 2 is, is, I do not permit a woman to exercise or teach, um, exercise authority or teach um, a, a man, and that women are to um, uh, submit with entire submissiveness. And, and I came across those, those verses in the New Testament, and I thought, okay, 
well, this is really clear. I can understand this, so therefore, there's just no debating it. And for years, I held to a view that I actually don't hold to anymore. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of really smart people out there who do not hold to my viewpoint. And what I want to be really careful is I don't want to stand here like a lawyer defending my position. What I really want to do is just allow the Bible to say what it says, and, and you may not actually leave here with all the answers. My hope, if you don't get anything, if you are not convinced that my, um, that my position is the right one, my hope is that at bare minimum, you will see that it may not be as cut and dry as you might think, and it may not be as cut and dry as perhaps you were told. And so that you would go and wrestle with the Lord over these passages is a good thing. That's never a bad thing, okay? Chauvinism, that idea of, of men being out in front of women and above women, I am convinced that it's kind of crept into the church. And, and it's to be expected because everything in society that we accept as a cultural norm eventually makes its way into the church. We're seeing that right now with the LGBTQ movement. Our culture has embraced it, and slowly churches start to embrace it. And I actually think that's probably what happened with the concept of chauvinism kind of bringing its way into the church a little bit. Now, let me just tell you, I'm not one of the woke Christians. I'm not one of the Christians who are like, we just need to embrace everything. But I am one of the Christians who's like, I want the Bible to say what it says. And even if I don't like it, and even if it disagrees with my theology, I want to do what the Bible says. And that's where I found myself about five years ago as I started to relook at these passages on women in ministry because I thought I knew what I believed. And then when I was faced with other passages of Scripture, I realized it may not be as cut and dry. And so what I'm going to tell you is I believe, and then I'm going, I'm going to tell you what I believe, and then I'm going to show you why I believe it. I am convinced that women can do anything that men can do as far as role, function, and office in the kingdom of God, and I believe that the New Testament and Old Testament both bear that out. Now you say, well, wait a second. What do you do with 1 Corinthians 14, and what do you do with 1 Timothy 2, where women should be kept silent in the church, and they must receive, um, um, they must submit with entire submissiveness? I'm, I'm going to tell you what I do with those. But I would like to start with a hermeneutical principle that you guys need to apply every time you read the Bible. And I've, I've used that term before. It means our method of studying the Bible. Here's the deal. Anytime you see an author of Scripture practicing something other than what he is preaching, then what we need to do is re-examine his preaching. If we have an author of Scripture who's saying one thing in his letters, but doing the opposite in, say, the book of Acts, or in maybe some of the other letters, then what we need to do is we need to reinterpret and at least re-examine what he's preaching because what we do know is that he's not a hypocrite. Okay? Now, whether that's Peter, whether it's John, whether it's James, whether it's Paul. And in this case, we're going to look at Paul because Paul is the one who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians and Paul is the one who wrote the book of 1 Timothy. And what we're going to see is this clear passage Women submit with entire submissiveness, and women should be kept silent in the churches. It actually doesn't match what Paul practiced in his day-to-day -day ministry. And so when I see that, what that should at least force me to do is go, okay, I can't interpret what he did. He clearly did what he did. So maybe I just need to look at his preaching and go, okay, how can I make this not contradict itself? 
We need to rightly we need to rightly divide the word of truth, and we need to look at the whole counsel of God, even on things that seem really clear. Does that make sense? So when practice doesn't line up with preaching, we need to re-examine the preaching. So, in light of that, before I get to 1 Timothy, before I get to 1 Corinthians 14, I want to look at a few women in the Bible, and most of these are written about by Paul. I'm going to look at one that Jesus talks about, okay, that I think are really helpful for us to look at when we're trying to interpret and examine 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. The first lady I want to talk about is Mary Magdalene. Okay, Mary Magdalene, she was delivered of um, seven demons, if I remember the story, right? And she is one of the few people who actually make it. She was one of the few, I'll use the word disciples. She wasn't one of the 12, but in the same way that we're disciples. She's one of the few disciples who actually made it up to the cross to watch Jesus be crucified. There was three people who did it, and two of them were women. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and John the Beloved. Everyone else basically pulled a Peter and dipped out for fear of their life. And so this woman, Mary Magdalene, who loved Jesus so much, who Jesus had saved and set free and delivered, she's watching Jesus be crucified, and then when he dies, she's the one who goes to the tomb. She discovers that it's empty. And Jesus shows up to her. The very first person that the resurrected Jesus shows up to is a woman. And he doesn't just show up to her. He gives her some very specific instruction. Look at this. This is John chapter 20. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, because she saw him and hugged him. And, you know, and he goes, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren, the other disciples, and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, then he has said these things to her. Okay. Now, I'm not going to flat out tell you that Mary Magdalene's preaching the gospel. But I will tell you this. I went to Bible college. Do you know what they teach you in Bible college? They teach you this. If you go on a multiple choice question, they're going to say, what is the gospel? It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what, that is the, the doctrinal reference to what is the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And what I see here is the very first person that Jesus shows up to is a woman, and he says this very specifically, go and tell my disciples that I've resurrected and that I'm going to ascend into the heaven. That is the death, that is the burial, that is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the good news. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that she preached the gospel, but what I am going to say is Jesus told her to instruct the disciples that Jesus had come back. Now, you could call it preaching. You can call it teaching. You can call it explaining. You could, talk, you could call it telling. I don't care what you call it. At the end of the day, Jesus decided to do something countercultural, appear to a woman first, and then he said, I want you to go tell all the men what you've seen. Okay, that's Jesus. Let's look at Paul. Paul would talk about a woman whose name is Priscilla. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Priscilla. Priscilla. She's mentioned pretty often in the New Testament. Now, here's the thing about Priscilla. She wasn't just mentioned um, by herself. Typically, she's mentioned with her husband, whose name is Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is the wife, and Aquila is the husband. And every time they are mentioned together, guess whose name is put first? Priscilla. Now, you'd be like, well, that doesn't mean anything. Okay, it actually does mean something. Typically, 
the leader is represented first. Typically, whoever's the more prominent of the two are represented first. But here's the thing about Aquila. She was a teacher in the church, in the early church, and I'll prove it to you in a second. And she was a house church leader along with her husband. Priscilla and Aquila were shepherds and overseers. They were house church leaders. And it's fascinating to me that she is always referenced first, not her husband. And I'm going to show you something really interesting about Priscilla. She's not just a house church leader. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Apollos in the Bible. Apollos is one of the apostles, okay? He is one of what we call the 70 apostles early on in the church. He's not like the capital A apostle. He's the little A apostle. But he uh, is a high-ranking Jew and works along with Paul. And actually, there's a working theory right now that he is the one who wrote the book of Hebrews, okay? Interesting enough. Yep, so you can have fun with that. Apollos was a total G, so to speak. The man did a lot of things for the Lord. The man was considered, he was a named apostle. Now let's look and watch Priscilla instruct and teach Apollos about Jesus. This is Acts chapter 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and set out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos in Alexandria by birth, an eloquent man. Look at how they, just first of all, look at how they talk about Apollos. A Jew by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. Can we just say, Apollos is awesome. Look at the next verse. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Interesting. A man, mighty in the scriptures, who's preaching in the synagogues, a known rabbi and teacher, is now submitting to the teaching of Priscilla and Aquila. Not Aquila. It says very specifically, Priscilla and Aquila. Isn't that interesting? Okay. She's a teacher. She's a house church leader as referenced in uh, Romans 16. We'll see that in a second. How about Phoebe? You guys ever heard of Phoebe? Not Phoebe Buffet. Smelly cats. I don't think that's a very appropriate show. I haven't seen it in a long time, but it was funny a long time ago when I saw it. Who here loves the book of Romans? Yeah. You're all God-fearing Christians. We're good. We're good Protestant reformers. We love the book of Romans. What if I told you that the very first person to read and teach aloud publicly and probably give a verse-by-verse explanation of the book of Romans was a woman deacon named Phoebe? Isn't that interesting? So get this. Phoebe, when Paul was writing the book of Romans, Phoebe was the one whom Paul gave the letter to. And she had a very specific job. She was to deliver and to instruct the church in Rome using Paul's letter. And so she would have been the one who came to Rome and gathered the house church leaders, Priscilla and Aquila are named among them, and she would read aloud the book of Romans. What we call the book of Romans, to them it was just a letter. And with Paul being gone... If they had any questions about this book or about this letter, they would ask Phoebe. 
And Phoebe would explain what Paul meant in the book of Romans, which is a very confusing book. I'm sure there was a lot of questions. It could be said, we don't know, but it could be said that Phoebe was probably the first person to ever do expositional preaching. She was probably the first person to walk verse by verse and passage by passage and read the book of Romans to a group of mixed company. Isn't that interesting? Phoebe, she's also called in Greek a diakonos. Diakonos, it means a deacon, servant. If you guys remember the idea, um, back, I think, okay, I'm reaching, but I think it's Acts chapter 6, could be Acts chapter 7. The disciples are preaching and teaching, and they need to appoint a new office, a new group of people, because they're getting inundated with all kinds of other leadership administrative tasks. And so they go, okay, we need to find people of good character, of good reputation. Let's appoint deacons, diakonos. And they appoint Stephen. And Stephen would go on to preach the gospel and be martyred for it, and he would be the first martyr. Stephen is the first martyr who also happens to be the first deacon. Well, Phoebe is given the exact same Greek word to describe her. Let me read it to you. This is Romans chapter 16, verse 1. I commend you. So he's talking to the church. He says, I commend you. I'm sorry, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, that's diakonos, a diakonos of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has been a helper of many and of myself as well. She's a deacon. It's very clear. It's the exact same Greek word. She's a deacon. That's going to come in handy in just a minute as we unpack women being deacons. Um, okay, I'm going to butcher these names, so bear with me. Um, Euodia and Sintaichi. Sounds, honestly, it sounds Asian. Sintaichi does not sound Greek. These were house church leaders in Philippi who struggled to find unity in the faith. And so Paul would write to them in the book of Philippians and instruct them. This is what it says. Um, this is Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sintaichi uh, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored. Look at the language. Side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of our fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul would look at these women and he would say, hey, they have labored side by side with me along with Clement for the working of the gospel. Okay, how about Junia? Junia is also mentioned in Romans 16. Now there's a little bit of controversy surrounding Junia because there's two camps about Junia. Some say she's an apostle. Some say she's just known among the apostles. I'm gonna read it to you. We're gonna look at the Greek and let you make your decision, okay? She and her husband or brother, it's a little fuzzy, um, are mentioned in Romans chapter 16. That sounds weird, but we just don't know. Her and another man who's clearly related to her in some form or fashion, okay? Romans, uh, they are imprisoned for preaching the gospel, okay? So she, obviously she could preach the gospel enough to be imprisoned for it. And they are counted among the apostles in Romans 16. Look at this. Paul says this, greet Andronicus, that's the brother slash husband, could be both, I don't know, probably not, that'd be weird, and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, okay, this is the language that gets people tripped up, who are outstanding among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. I'm going to read it again. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles 
who were in Christ before me. So you can see where that reads a little funny. We're like, outstanding among the apostles. Does that mean they were outstanding among the apostles? Like they're in the apostles, but they're like the creme de la creme of the apostles? Or does that mean she's outside of the apostles, but this group of apostles is like, you are outstanding. It reads a little funny. Until you look at the Greek, I'm convinced, guys, the Greek seems to be super clear. It seems to be clear. I Googled it. Once again, I'm not a Greek scholar. Outstanding. The Greek word for outstanding used here is episemos. And it means this, having been marked, stamped, or coined as. Having been marked, stamped, or coined as. The word among is the Greek word in, E-N. And it literally means in or with. So let me read it to you according to the Greek definition. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who have been marked, stamped, and coined as with apostles. If I were to just look at the Greek and remove any preconceived lens, it seems to read more like she is an apostle than it is that she is separate from them and simply known by them. Does that make sense? Okay, that's Junius. Now, if we have, or Junia, depending on your translation, if we have all of those passages in our mind, now let's read 1 Corinthians 14 and let's read 1 Timothy 2. 1 Corinthians 14, these are verses 34 through 35. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject to themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak at church. 1 Timothy 2, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Can you see the disconnect between his practice and the preaching? Can you at least see that maybe the issue isn't as cut and dry as perhaps you were told it was? 1 Corinthians 14, he says, hey, women are to be kept silent in the churches, but what do you do when you have women house church leaders? What do you do when you have people like Junia uh, and, and, and who has been imprisoned for preaching the gospel? What do you do with people like Priscilla who are teaching Apollos who would go on to become an apostle? If you were to ask Apollos, hey, where did you get all of this knowledge about Jesus? He would say, oh, Priscilla and Aquila, they discipled me. Together, female and male. So we can't just simply say, well, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 seem really clear, so let's reinterpret everything else. What we actually have to do is do the work of a Berean, which we've talked about at great length here, and we actually have to labor over this issue because it's a really important issue. And if I have women who are teaching, preaching, leading, having the office of overseer, deacon, elder, and even potentially apostle in the New Testament. And then I come to these passages that should force me to go, hmm, maybe we're getting those passages wrong. It doesn't demand that we are, but we should at least put that on the table. Amen? And that's what I did. Five years ago, when I started working through this, I had never heard of any of those women. 
And I started to read about them and started to realize how much Paul talks and how greatly Paul talks about people like Priscilla and Aquila. And I go, that doesn't seem to be right. And so here's what I'm going to do. I want to give you two at least possibilities for re-examining those two texts. Okay? Two possibilities that I think give greater clarity on the passage while keeping intact the verses that we just read. Okay? Because if, if, if all we're going to do is say, well, those verses are clear, it's going to force us to deal with some hard things in those passages that we just read. Okay? What I'm trying to do is keep intact the practice by re-examining the preaching. So I'm going to give you two potential ways that this, I think, could be taken. You can take both of them. You can take neither of them. You can totally disagree with me after this. That's fine. But I really, I, I really want to do, I want to, be, I want to be faithful to what the text says. Here's the two possibilities. Number one, that it's instruction given to a specific culture. Now this is a, I'm going to be honest with you, before I agreed with this position, I thought this was a total cop-out. I hate it when preachers and teachers just go, well, it's cultural, case closed. And I'm like, that doesn't make any, you can't just, you can't just throw it's cultural on there and then ignore the Bible. That doesn't make any sense. Right? And, and, and what I would say is, well, you, what, you guys are just uncomfortable with the text. And, and, and you know what? Um, that's on you. You need to let the text say what it says. But if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I was probably more uncomfortable with the idea that there could be female leadership in the church than they were uncomfortable with it. I think it's instruction given for a specific culture. Paul would say this when he's talking about his evangelism. He would say this. I have learned to become all things to all men that I might win some. It's an important principle. I've become all things to all men that I might win some. To the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Gentile, I became a Gentile. To the rich, I became rich. And to the poor, I became poor. I will be whatever I need to be according to the need of the moment in order that I might win some to the kingdom of God. And he would dedicate chapters to this. Romans 14 and 15 deal with this extensively. And the idea is this. Hey, it's hard enough to come to Jesus. That in, its, uh, that in and of itself is a stumbling block. And we as Christians, we have a duty to, as we are preaching the gospel and as we are evangelizing, we have a duty to make sure that we remove every stumbling block we can without compromising the gospel. So that's what Paul says, I've become all things to all men and I might win some. And I think that that same principle that he's using, I think that that same principle applies in 1 Corinthians 14 and potentially even applies in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I think it's cultural. Now here's the deal. Here's, let me, let me ex further expound upon this. In today's day and age, 2022, we send missionaries to Muslim nations. We send male and female missionaries to predominantly Muslim nations and though they are free in Jesus to not have a head covering, though they are free in Jesus to preach the gospel to men, though they are free in Jesus and have every liberty, they are also free and it is demanded of them via the scripture that they would lay down their rightful liberty in Christ if it is going to help somebody else come to Jesus. And so when we send women to Muslim nations, what do we ask them to do? 
hey, it's cultural over there. You need to put your head, you need to have the head covering on. I get, I get that you're free in Jesus and you don't technically have to, but if you want to make inroads into that nation and into that people group, you're gonna learn to become all things to all men that you might win some. It is hard enough to come to Jesus. It's a, it's a hard enough stumbling block, so we're going to remove every cultural stumbling block that we can without compromising the truth of who Jesus is. And so when we go, well, wait a second, that's cultural. I don't think it's actually a cop-out. I think it is a cultural thing for the day. Now, here's why I say this. Especially, I think this is just funny. I'm, this is going to sound like I'm picking on my complementarian brothers and sisters, and I'm not. <clears throat> but the, the funny thing about saying, well, it's, it's cultural, are the churches and the theological camps that would say that women cannot teach or exercise authority over a man, they would actually put the rest of the verses in that passage under the context of culture. And I've heard them do it. And I'll read it to you, and you'll see why. And you'll be like, oh, you're totally right. Let me read to you the verses right before 1 Timothy 2. Let me read you the whole passage in 1 Timothy 2. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly garments, but rather by means of godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, the same camp in the theological world that is going, women cannot be pastors, elders, elders, deacons, overseers, they would look at the first verses that I read to you and go, oh, those are cultural. Because they're never going to look at women in their church and say, you are not allowed to have braided hair or wear jewelry. That's what Paul just said. He goes, hey, women, adorn yourselves modestly and discreetly. Don't braid your hair and don't wear costly pearls or gold. Do you know of a single church today in America that would say, ladies, if you come in here with your, head braided, with your hair braided, you are to exit promptly? Absolutely not. And if you hear them, they'll go, well, that's clearly cultural. And I'm going, that's inconsistent. You can't say that the first two verses are cultural and the second two verses are not cultural. Either the passage that is a complete thought is cultural or it's not cultural. And I'm okay with that. I can get around. Listen, if it makes me uncomfortable, I'm okay with it. I don't care. But let's, let's call it what it is. Let's be consistent in our theology. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 14, women must be kept silent in the church. The same churches that argue this, they put 1 Corinthians 11 in the realm of culture. What's 1 Corinthians 11, Casey? Women need to have their head covered when they pray. They go, well, that's clearly cultural. But how could 1 Corinthians 14 not be cultural if 1 Corinthians 11 is cultural? We need to learn to, to be consistent with what our theology says. Okay, and we, whether it makes us uncomfortable or not, so I would say, I think 1 Timothy 2, I think one possibility in order to keep the other examples intact that we read, I think one possibility for interpreting 1 Timothy 2 is to interpret it as cultural. That Paul is looking at Timothy in Ephesus and he's saying, hey, listen, because of what's going on in the day, women, we need them to keep silent. 
in the church gathering, we don't want them talking, and we don't want them leading because that's going to keep people from coming to Jesus. And I get that they're free, and that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. However, we lay down those rights anytime we have a chance to win somebody to Jesus. I think that is within the realm of plausibility. Well, how about the second possible interpretation would be, and I I really like this one, um, that the context is actually married couples in the church, not generally men and generally women. This is where it gets a little dicey, okay? I don't like being like, our translations really stink because I don't want to undermine the fact that we have a good translation in our Bible. But, but you have to understand, Greek's a little different. The same word used for men and women in the New Testament is the same Greek word used for husband and wife. There is no distinction. Okay, So if you Google it, go to blueletterbible.com, they will show you can break down every aspect of every word, and what you will see is the Greek word for man also is the same word for husband, and the Greek word for woman is the same word used for wife. And so what our translators do is they get together and they go, okay, contextually, what makes the most sense, man or husband? Okay, does that make sense? Our translators, we just have to remember, are not inspired of the Lord. The original text is inspired of the Lord, and we have a translation of the original text. And our translation, I will just say, is completely adequate. It's completely sufficient. But these little nuances, it's really helpful. You have a smartphone, use your smartphone for something smart, as Pastor Chris would say. Go and do your own study. 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 2, I think reads clearer and upholds more scripture if you remove the context of man generally speaking and women generally speaking and instead look at it as husband and wife. And I'll give you the the reason in just a minute. Let me read to you what that passage would read like if we're talking husband-wife rather than man or woman. A wife must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness But I do not allow a wife to teach or exercise authority over a husband, but to remain quiet. And then he would go on to say, he'd reference the curse. And he'd say, for it was Adam created first, and then it was Eve, and and Eve sinned, and, and she'll be saved through childbearing. And it's the Greek word for sozo. It's the Greek word sozo. It means saved, like actually saved, right? In other words, she's going to produce the very offspring of Jesus, which is going to save the entire generation, to save everybody. And he references the fall and specifically references the curse. Do you guys remember what Eve's portion of the curse was? There's consequences. Adam had consequences. Eve had consequences. Eve's consequences, very specifically, increase in childbirth or childbirth pains. He says this, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, he says, part of the consequences of the fall is that marriage, when it was designed to be equal and co-labor, he says, one of the consequences now is that you're going to have to go under and you're going to want to usurp authority. That's the consequence of the fall. Which makes a heck of a lot more sense if I have the consequences of the fall and I say this, A wife must receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a wife to teach or exercise authority over her husband, but but to remain quiet. And I think the context of this 
Seems to be clear to me, and I get that it can be really confusing to you, but here's the idea. When Jesus comes on the scene and, and, and the Holy Spirit's poured out upon all flesh and everybody's prophesying and everybody's getting gifts of the Spirit, then there's house church leaders that are women for the first time ever, and the kingdom of God is starting to align and balance out genders, and there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. In the midst of the chaos that that brings... Headship still exists. In the midst of neither male nor female, at the end of the day, male nor female still exists in marriage. Ephesians 5 would say that men are the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Okay? And so, ladies, when you get married, you are going to submit underneath your husband and your husband is going to lead you and love you and Lord willing he's going to lead you and love you like Jesus that's his call but headship still very much exists in marriage and what I think he's actually doing here is going hey in the midst of this neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female in the midst of all of these women coming up and doing amazing things he's going hey how do we do headship though if if you're supposed to, if women are supposed to submit to men, how do we do that in the context of church where everybody can do everything? And I think what he's saying is, hey, actually, headship still exists in church. The man's not the head of the family until he walks into the church doors and then all of a sudden it's free reign. I think what he's saying is, hey, if you're married and you go to church, your headship trumps whatever your liberty is in the church. A wife must receive instruction with entire submissiveness seems to completely fortify Ephesians 5, which is all about headship and submission. Now, that's hard. I get that. And I thought we were going to be able to talk about it. We're not going to be able to talk about it. We are doing a podcast about it, though, soon. Be on the lookout for that. Shameless plug. But I actually think that the better way to look at this is to go, I, I think what he's saying is in church that husbands and wives and headship still exist even though there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor man nor female. Now, I get that some of you guys are like, I, I, still don't, I still don't understand it. Let me just tell you this. Nobody actually thinks that that verse, women must receive instruction with entire submissiveness, nobody thinks that that verse is actually true. Even your complementarian. Because here's what, here's what you would have to admit. If you say that that verse is true, I'll read it again. A woman must receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. If you're going to say, well, that is a dogmatic statement, then here's what you have to say, that all men are over all women and that women must submit to all men. And nobody believes that. Kobe, you're not over, you're not, you're, you're not, you don't have authority over my wife right? No. Do I have authority over your mom? No, of course I don't. But according to that verse, if I'm just going to let that verse say what it says, nobody believes that all men are in authority over all women and that women are not to buck the system of men. Nobody believes that. No, that's not how it works. I have authority over my wife. I am her spiritual authority. Fellas, you're going to get married one day and you will be the spiritual authority of your house, of your kids and of your wife. And ladies, one day you're going to get married and you're going to have to wrestle with that. There's blessing in it, trust me. There's also some pain in it. It is the result of the curse after all. It's supposed to hurt a little. 
But at the end of the day, I am convinced that that word is better translated husband and wife. Now, let me just say this. Let me give you a few arguments, three, just briefly, <clears throat> that I think address women in leadership within the church. Okay, and we're going we're gonna to land the plane here. I've been, I'm on 55 minutes. Remember I told you that Phoebe was a deaconess, that she was a diakonos? Remember that? Here's why this is important. Because one of the things that you will hear is that the argument is, well, women cannot be elders, overseers or shepherds, kind of the same category, um, but they can't be deacons either, and they can't be elders because the qualification for an elder is that you must be a husband of one wife. Okay? So they'll go, you can't be an elder because you have to be a husband. You have to be a man. Clearly. It's insinuated that you have to be a man. And that's the main argument. That's one of the main arguments that they will use. Now, here's what's interesting is a lot of those churches, though, they'll actually say that you can be a deaconess because you can't argue with the fact that Phoebe was a deaconess. You can't argue with the fact that she is clearly called a diakonos. And so there's a little bit of inconsistency there. Why? Because deacons, I'm going to read it to you, have the exact same requirements. Look at this. An overseer then, that's an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, and free from the love of money. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, addicted to too much wine. I like how it says too much wine, as if it's, a little, it's okay to be addicted to a little bit of wine. It's not. That's just our translation. Or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and of their household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see that the requirements are the same? Husband of one wife for deacons, husband of one wife for the elders. But Phoebe was a deacon and she wasn't the husband of one wife. Fair? So, wait a second. How is it okay then for her to, how can we say, well, you can't be an elder because you're not a husband of one wife, but you can be a deacon, even though you're not a husband of one wife, even though the exact passage says it's the same qualification? You can see where it's inconsistent. And I would just say this Paul is not saying you must be a husband. What Paul is saying is, hey, if you're going to be a deacon or you're going to be an elder and you're married, you've got to be married and you've got to do it God's way. Man, woman, husband, wife, context for life. Not man, multiple women, not women, multiple men. One man, one woman, context for life. To further drive home the point that he cannot, he cannot be saying that you must literally be a husband of one wife because Paul was not a husband of one wife. Paul wasn't even married. He's not going to disqualify himself for a very office that he holds. Paul's not going to go, you got to be a husband of one wife if you want to be an elder. It's a qualification. It's literal. You have to take it that way. Hey, Paul, you're not married. You're not a husband of one wife. Um, oh, it's okay. I'm an apostle. <laughs> got you there. That's not it. We're going by the letter of the law, not by the spirit of the law. If you're going to, do, if you're going to be an overseer and you're married, you need to be married God's way. Not every overseer is married. That's okay. We're going to talk about that in spiritual eunuchs. Okay, here's the second thing. The same churches that say women can't lead or teach allow women to sing on stage. Just humor me for just a moment. 
Because we're trying to go by the spirit of the law, not by the letter of the law. We're trying to go by the spirit of the text in the New Testament, not by the letter. Let me ask you this. What the heck is the difference between singing the gospel and preaching the gospel? No church is going to have a male-only band. They're not going to. They're going to have women up there singing and, 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 and singing the gospel and singing prophetically. And, and, and listen, they have like no, it, it's crazy to me. I'm going, that makes no sense. You're literally saying they can't teach according to this, but they can sing teach. Well, no. I think it's cultural. Those same churches, here's the next point, the same churches who would say women can't lead or teach or exercise authority over any man ever under any circumstances, they have no problem at all with women youth pastors, women middle school pastors, or women children's pastors. Let me read this to you. This is, have, you guys, have you guys ever Googled and, and gotten uh, a Google the Bible question? You've gotten to godanswers.com? God, God Answers is a great, I actually use that resource. That's a great, it's a great resource. But let me tell you, they would hold to this other view, and I'm not, I'm not slamming them. They're also very smart, and I may be wrong. But I just want to read to you what they say about this very issue. There is no scriptural precedent that forbids women uh, from also serving as worship leaders, youth ministers, or children's directors. The only restriction is that they do not assume the role of spiritual authority over adult men. And I'm going, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. Adult men. Here's what they just said. You can be a children's pastor and be a woman. Youth pastor and be a woman. You just can't pastor adult men. Here's the thing, though. The Bible doesn't have 18 as an adult. The Bible has 13 as an adult. Can you see the inconsistency? And what I would say is that all of us, now whether you agree with this, to this conclusion or not, the goal, guys, is that we would have consistent theology. And if we find that our theology actually works against itself, then we're in for a shaky time in our walk with the Lord. Now, what I'm saying is, I think 1 Corinthians 2, and I think, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, and I think 1 Timothy 2, I think they work better if you translate it, which is within the Greek context, husband and wife, and I think you can look at it and say it's cultural, and I think what that does is it actually keeps a firm foundation for the other passages that we talked about with Junia and Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila and Eunice and all of them. I think it's the most consistent way to look at it. Now, you may not be convinced. That's okay. Stand up. You may not be convinced. You guys can stand. Sorry. I'm on, I'm on my time. Stand up. You may not be convinced. That's okay. But ladies, this is really important because I want you to get this. The kingdom of God will not be all that it needs to be without your voice, your influence, and your leadership. It can't be. In the same way that Adam... Before the fall, before sin ever entered the world, the same way that Adam could not fulfill his God-given destiny and God's plan for the earth without Eve, so men cannot do it without women in the church. And I get that it, it still feels like you're at a disadvantage because you're a woman. I understand. I've talked to you. I, I, I see that pain. But you are not at a disadvantage in the kingdom, I promise. And God celebrates you. He celebrates what you have to offer and I, you may not, you may not get, worship team, you guys can come on up. You may not, you may not come to, from this message and go, okay, I am convinced 
that, that Casey is right, but I do want you to at least acknowledge the fact that it could be right, and that it may not be as cut and dry as we think, and we ultimately need to allow the text to search our heart, and we need to allow the text to tell us what it is to be a woman and a man, not culture and not religion. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.